This is a podcast from Rover. Holy shit. I'm, like I was half an hour late and I'm still shaking from this thing, looking at this thing, looking at me. After that, each night I went in, I took in half a kilo of beef each night and <laughs> fed, this, fed this thing to the thing, part of my entertainment. Um, so over the next three or four nights, so I increasingly the dolphin was getting used to me. I, the the security basically after midnight nothing happened. So if we went in after midnight, I remember thinking we've probably got free reign to do what we want. But there was a dog up the top. On the first night, I go in there with my cameraman. He was quite a big guy who was trying to lose weight, about one twenty kilos, <laughs> something like that. And he started he started having convulsions, and from uh, heat exhaustion. And so he and we are quite close to the to the the hut where the, where the guard is. And next thing, the guard starts walking around with this torch and he's shining it in us. And I'm sort of, we're lying down and this guy's like, mm, mm, mm. and this dog is going spastic at us. And eventually the, the guy wouldn't come in the jungle, but, you know, he's probably thinking, oh, I might be, there's a, you know, there's an agouti or tipiskunda or something, some little animal in there. So we just laid low and then, so, but then now I'm going in without my cameraman and I'm, I'm looking amongst my other volunteers and thinking, I need some physical people to carry this dolphin out. Like the dolphin's maybe 160, 170 kilos. So what I do is I get, I get Eric, my cameraman, I put him in the sling and I say, right, I want to see how far we can carry this guy. <laughs> And so I get these five <laughs> volunteers together. The one twenty carry. <laughs> let's let's say we, we would have had a chance of taking it out of the out of the out of the jungle. And to top it off, we I remember we we would have to lift the lift the dolphin about one and a half meters to get him out of the pool. So oh, I figured we tough. would be able to get him in the slings. Eventually, it's like we're not going to be able to do this. So I called the mission off. And I remember, and my crew was also starting to get our signature had been raised a little bit much. People had started to notice us and stuff. So I called the mission off. I've got this boat for the next the next four months. What do I do? I thought, man, let's just let's just go and film stuff. See what we find. And pretty much every day we found illegal stuff happening there. We, we found illegal logging operations where they were transporting these logs illegally down the river that had been pulled out of reserves. We've, um, on one of them, there was a pink dolphin that they were cooking on the back of, the back of this raft. Um, there was tons of animals for sale in the, in the markets. And what happens in the very remote markets, it's small, low-value animals. And then as the markets get larger, so for example, a small market we went to was Rakenya. You could buy birds and little mammals and you could buy little snakes there, all sorts of weird and wonderful stuff. And then uh, on, we we stumbled into this, right? We were going up one of these small tributaries and there was these two red-faced monkey carcasses on the side of the bank. We're like, what the hell is that? And we go ashore and this, this poacher comes down and red-faced monkeys, there's only, there's only about 5,000 of these left in the wild. Here's this, these two dead ones that have been skinned on the side of the thing. And so he's selling the meat. So he tries selling us the meat. And so we're, you know, we're being polite and sort of saying, you know, wow, that's amazing. You've got a red-faced monkey. Wow, that's cool. He goes and he's got the baby of one of these upstairs and that's what's worth the money. So we go, and he, he's got it with a, 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 like a piece of rope tied around it and it's tied on this tree and beneath it is the fire with the meat from the mother being cooked and he's using the smoke to calm the thing down and to you know so this poor monkey is getting covered in smoke and tears coming down as well like heartbreaking watching its parents being cooked below it yeah like like how can you how can you even conscience such things and you know, I got my my. Uh, I had a, you know one of the female crew with me. You know, she's in tears, and 
you know, and then the guy, he's, he's, so he's selling it, he'll sell it to us for, I think he started off at $400 and come down to $200. And so now I'm sort of tossing up, do I buy this monkey off the guy and facilitate the trade? And that encourages it. Do I ignore it and just carry on and say, that's what happens? Do we, do we make a TV episode out of it? You know, so so in the in the end, I remember thinking, he's he's not able to sell us. No one's going to come past here that's going to buy that monkey off. But I remember thinking he's going to be smuggling it. Like like the, I knew that that monkey, in say the Middle East, is probably worth five to ten thousand dollars. Like highly rare animal. So what I did was a, we we went down to the fork below the river. We knew there was a supply boat that would come in there, and we set an op up. We had me on one corner, my cameraman on another, another couple of volunteers with us watching this this point where we could film it from both angles. And sure enough, on Monday morning, this boat turns up and here's this poacher comes down, hands over several monkey carcasses, hand over, hands over a basket that had a snake in it and hands over this baby monkey. From there, we followed the trail. That goes down to Rakenya, which was maybe about 150 kilometres away. From there, the wildlife goes to Akitos, which is the Peruvian capital. From Akitos, it ends up going down through Manaus in Brazil and eventually... It goes all the way to Macapá in, in Brazil, and that's 1,500 kilometres away. Damn. The, uh, get, get this. So the, 1,500 kilometres away, the Amazon drops only about 25 metres over. And that what happens there? So the whole Amazon basin, it fills up over the wet season. It's like these lungs breathing. They're filling up. And then the dry season, it gradually comes down again. It's the most extraordinary place. It's one of the reasons the Amazon is relatively unique around the world. It's like this, this yearly cycle of lungs filling this place up with water, and then it drains out again. So anyway, the trail led me all the way to Makapa. So now the, what I'm going to do, I'm going to put the port under surveillance and try and figure out what are the boats that go leaving this place that, that are taking wildlife. So I went down to uh, a place, Santander, which is a little, maybe 10 kilometers away, looking to rent a boat. And I'd, I went to the prison where um, Peter Blake's murderers were held. So I went there uh, on one of the days and I was trying to get to meet um, meet one, like the leader of the thing, never checked him, but he, you know, the, the, the authorities, he wouldn't let me meet with him. Um, I had some, one meeting with a politician I met with two NGOs that weren't involved necessarily in, in animal smuggling, but more in conservation in general and could give me advice and stuff like that. So then on the on the day that I went to the prison in the morning, after that I went to Santander to try and rent a boat. And I was walking around, sort of, and I remember watching a guy, he was following me, and I went into a little coffee shop and I sat there and I saw him over the other side of the road on a cell phone talking. And um, so, you know, now my, my hackles are up and I'm thinking, what's going on here? Um, and then I was walking along past, past some sort of like – very hovily like shops or whatever and next thing out from beside of the road this guy lunges at me with a knife and he's he's quite a tall sort of skinny guy like maybe six foot two and as he comes at me he's got this arm holding the knife and I end up sort of grabbing that with one hand and next thing I'm sort of holding his wrist and sort of grabbing him on this and and you know maybe maybe about six or seven seconds like that and then next thing there's a there's a an arm comes around my throat and the guy he sort of pulled into my throat and put his hips into my ass and so basically it sort of rolled me backwards and so so the three of us fell down on the ground and and as we came down the knife went into my ribs and I wasn't sure like I knew I'd been knifed I didn't know how bad it was but I did but it hurt but you know now I'm fighting for my life and and the guy's trying to pull my pack off my pack is strapped at the front struggling away and and the guy changes his hands with the knife so now it's in this hand and I've got that hand and then he tries changing it back again and then like after I don't 
maybe a minute or so. I remember thinking, because he was, he was very long-limbed, and at that stage I was, I was pretty fit. And I remember thinking, like, this guy hasn't knifed me yet. And then the guy behind me, he gives up on my bag and he grabs my phone on the ground and runs off. So now I've only got one guy on top of me. And now there's people around watching this. So I'm yelling out, you know, help, help, help. No one coming to help. And so I've got this guy's two. Yeah. Yeah. And so I remember I I wriggled around and I got my two legs around his belly. And I remember thinking I need to try and flip this guy over. And then he, the guy changed as though he's trying to get away. And now I'm tossing up. If I let him go, he's going to come back at me with a knife or does he run off? And so I'm sort of tossing up the things. I remember oh, hanging on shit. to about 15 seconds, but I, I wasn't quite strong enough in decent position to roll him over. So, I'm thinking, so I, me- I remember sort of letting the guy go and he stands up. And so I, I sort of stand up and, and off he runs. Um, and so then I, you know, I, I grab, grab oh, I pull my pack back up. Uh, go and find a motorbike. You know, I'm looking around. All these people just standing there staring at me. Mm. And there they've got these little yellow motorbikes, which are like motor taxis. So I j- motorcycle taxis. I jump on the back of one of those. I said, take me to my hotel. So I took me back to the hotel. I ended up sort of cleaning myself up as best I could. And the wound sore. The wound really, really hurt. Um, then I went to the hospital and the the doctor who sewed me up, um, when she cleaned out the wound, I remember she gave this little whistle. And she's like, you're very lucky. And the knife, she could see the there was like this this you could see where the blade had gotten caught on the two ribs. So there's oh. a, there's a mark there and there's a mark there, and uh, and she she said like there's going to be a bad bruise where this went in. So now she, so they're going straight like if they go between the ribs, it goes into your organs, probably pops a lung and yeah. So oh, it's it's it would have gone to so the point of it stopped between two ribs. Yeah, yeah it's exactly. So, so it would have gone into my lungs if it had kept going, and you know, and then so then you're not going to last long. Like one lung gone, starting to fill up with blood, you're going to get weak really, really fast. So you know, she said you're you're a lucky boy. And anyway, she she sewed me up. Um, and I went went back to my hotel and, and booked my ticket out of there. Um, and so, that, uh, do you know who that bloke was, or what? so so the so after I left the hospital, I went to the police station, and so I reported it. And at this stage, when I first reported, it, the cops were like, "Ah, oh, you know, it's probably just a burglary gone wrong." And they said, "You know, what are you doing here?" So I explained to them what I'd been doing, and they're like. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Maybe we'll go out there. So the following day, they they took me out. Went out there with four policemen. I'd put together a. I'd had one of my sponsors um, call me up and said, "Look," he said, "I'll give you a ten grand reward to find who these bastards were." So I I wrote this thing saying ten thousand dollars reward for information leading to the capture. So the police have this note and they're giving these out and people start coming forward. And one lady comes forward and she said, "I saw the two guys leave." She said, "They're not locals." And they left in a Toyota Hilux, like a late model Toyota Hilux. Now, that's probably an $80,000 car. Makapa and Santana, they is poor. You don't see those sort of cars every day. So at this stage, you know, then the police are like saying, like, maybe this is a hit job. And and so their, their end conclusion was it's highly suspicious. And I said, well, why did they take the phone and try taking my pack? And he said, if it's a burglary, it gets no attention. If it's and you know if they come in and they mm. kill you and and they take your phone and pack, he says it's just another. It's a burglary gone wrong. If it's a hit job, we give it attention, and there's a much higher chance of us catching them. And so I was like, oh, it's a hit job. We're like, let's catch these fuckers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but anyway, I um, so I, I I flew out. I think it was 
the following day I flew out and then I kept in touch with the police and, you know, a little while later they said they didn't find anything. And then about a year later there was a, there was a Kiwi guy who did a documentary about Peter Blake and he got murdered, you know, only a few kilometres where I got knifed. And so they flew me back there. We went and met the doctor who had signed me up and went and had another meeting with the police and, you know, they just sort of said, look, you know, it's a very busy place here and we have a lot of things we haven't had any leads on it. So, um, and one night, so on the on the the film crew that did this Peter Blake docker, they went round with the police. They arrested 53 people in one night, of which I think over 20 of them were murderers. Holy wow. Like it is, yeah. like that place is next level. The guy's, he's got a TV show coming up that he's filming over there just to, to film what happens in Makapa. Like it is one of the most dangerous places on earth, eh? How do you, yeah, how do you keep safe in an environment like that? The, the downside I ran on this thing, like, like it's, if you've got one person, by themselves, effectively, it's no people. Like you are, you're a target waiting to be caught. And when we flew in there, Brazil had just made a um, a law that meant any Americans going to Brazil needed to have a visa. They did in retaliation because America was having lots mm. of Brazilians emigrating there illegally, and so they so now Brazil needs a, a visa to get to America. America did the same to Brazil. Uh, Brazil did the same to America. So my, my my guy going in, who's a pretty decent security guy. They, um, he needed a visa. He didn't know. So he got booted out of there. So now it's just me there. And so the, the big mistake I made was carry on in a very dangerous town. Um, you know, I thought I had my wits about me, but still got rolled up. And, you know, valuable lesson for me. When you're by yourself, do not go into sketchy places like that. Do you run any sort of body armor protection, like sort of, uh, that, you know, like sort of plates or anything like that? With or is that red flag to a ball being like, what's some, that the, Well, even yeah. though, like you could have some like real tight Kevlar stuff, or we even ride in some motorcycle gear, which like, I think the Australian police use as well, which is the Dyneema, which means it's like stab proof. And yeah, so we we do have um, we've got a few sets of body armor, um, but you can't wear it like you. So you know, you're trying. Well, it's not that. It's you're, you're trying to keep a low profile, and a, you know you, you want your signature to be as small as possible. So wherever you are, you've got to pretend you're just a normal tourist or you're a local or whatever you can get away with. As soon as you go putting body armor, what the hell is <laughs> this guy? So we do wear it some on like the illegal gold mining missions in Japan. We'll wear them there now. We've got some really good sets that got donated by a German company, uh, and the the local rangers they wear body armor as well. But but it is hot. You you put body armor on now. Now you've added, you know, probably six kilos of, mm. and and you've now you've got this thing insulating you. So, it's one of the reasons the jungle patrols, the, the, you need to be really fit to do those. And you know, I've had I've had several of my crew that I've taken on patrol end up heat exhaustion, and it's an embarrassment. So you know, now I'm a lot more careful who you take in the jungle, and it's hard. Respect to the rangers. It's easy for me to front up and do a patrol for a week or two. When that's your job and you've got yeah, two rounds. weeks of that, two yeah. weeks of that, and then it's the wet season. Yeah. You know, we'd see you getting, you know, like like 100% humidity and it's 30 degrees in the jungle and you've got this body armour and, and you know, it's not just the armour, it's the, the surrounding materials that, that carry those. And you've got 30 kilos of, of food and supplies on your back and you've got a got an M16 assault rifle with you. It is hard work and, you know, it's one of the reasons I, I total respect for the rangers. Being a ranger is one of the most dangerous jobs on earth now. There's something like 400 rangers a year get killed, sometimes by animals like, you know, Terciopelo that we'll talk talk about in a while, that, you know, snake bites and, you know, killed by hippos and things, but the majority of them do get murdered. They do get shot, like when we talked about the gold miners firing back at us in Corcovado. 
it is a dangerous job, and you know rangers continue to pay with their life. Do they? Do they? Are they sort of looked after to the same level? If you are caught shooting at a ranger, or you have an altercation with them, do you get the the real book thrown at you? Are you sort of treated like, say, for example, you assault a police officer, man, you get a hiding. Like they they really throw the book at you. I the rangers in Costa Rica are super professional. I've never seen them give a hiding to anyone. Yeah, and there's been a few cases where you think like a hiding is justified. So there's a beautiful thing about the Ticos. Ticos, like as a Costa Rican, they are very non-conflict and non-violent. And, you know, even though these people are doing the wrong thing and in some cases might have threatened our lives, they are still polite and respectful. You know, they take command of the situation. But mm. they, there's a certain level of respect provided. And, you know, you, you've got to hand it to them that you can do that after these guys have been firing at you. Uh, and you've come along and acted really professional. And, you know, they, they, they is a privilege to work with those guys. And I find that in all the, you know, I've worked with the Frontier Police who are very well trained by the Americans. Um, they're super reluctant to fire their guns at anyone. Um, and we've done work with the Coast Guard there, really well trained units, super professional. So the, the Costa Rican forces that we work with, I'm blessed to get up op- to operate with them. And it's a lesson for my crew that are lucky enough to go and work with them. Super professional.